0: This is Bloomberg Business Week, insight from the reporters and editors who bring you America's most trusted business magazine, plus global business, finance and tech news as it happens. Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Messer and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. For those of you keeping track, week 57, working from home still for so many. Tim and I, though, both in the office this week. And I have to say, over the last week, both of us reminded that COVID is alive and kicking and concerns about possibly getting it, putting us back home. Each of us for a few days. Yeah,
2: it did. I mean, a a runny nose is no longer just a runny nose. It's a runny nose plus waiting a few days then a COVID test.
1: (laughs) Exactly. Unfortunately,
2: a negative one on my part.
1: Mine as well.
2: Well, speaking of the virus, U.S. regulators pausing the use of J&J's vaccine as they await more information on possible complications. Coming up this hour, how that news may lead to more vaccine hesitancy. We'll talk with the CEO of Surgical Solutions.
1: And Tim, even with the J&J setback, companies are plotting their way forward. We'll hear from the CEOs of IMAX, Hyatt Hotels, Tapestry, and Mozilla. And one of the founders of Jet.com, Nate Faust, on his new startup, Olive. All of that to come, we begin with this week's CHIP Summit at the White House. President Biden's top economic and national security advisors hosted more than a dozen chief executive officers to talk about the administration's trillion trillion infrastructure plan and the global semiconductor shortage. The president says there's bipartisan support in Congress for efforts to strengthen the U.S. supply chain and revamp batteries and semiconductors.
3: China and the rest of the world is not waiting, and there's no reason why Americans should wait.
1: Among those attending, the
2: CEOs of Ford, GM, Intel, and Google. And a recent story in Bloomberg Businessweek explored Intel's new Hail Mary with a $20 million bet on U.S. manufacturing. We talked with Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber and Tom Giles, Bloomberg technology executive editor.
4: Look, Intel has the money um, and they still throw off a lot of cash from their existing business. Um, so I have no doubt that they're going to throw a lot of money at this problem, Um the challenge for them is that they have slipped in uh, production of the most advanced chips. And just how quickly can you you can throw a lot of money at the problem, but how quickly can you get these new um, fabs, these new chip production plants, up and running? Um, and how quickly can you fix the technology that they've fallen behind? You know, making these chips smaller and smaller every cycle, becomes harder and harder and and harder to do at the scale that Intel needs to do it. Remember, they're the main supplier to the the servers and the computers around the world. Um, And the fact of the matter is other companies have just gotten faster and better than they are at cranking these things out at scale. And that's the the real challenge that they have right
1: now. What's great about this story, um, there's so much, and I can only imagine the individuals you talk to it, because there's so much insight into the different CEOs and the different stumbles that Intel did after just kind of owning, uh, I feel like, the semiconductor industry. You talk specifically, I feel like, about a major blunder, uh, Tom, and that was the misstep it did with Apple Mm -hmm. by not linking up Mm -hmm. with them. How much did that set them back?
4: Yeah, so when it comes to mobile chips, um, that is an area where Intel just tried and tried again uh, many times to get a toehold in that market. One of the early, one of the early instances that we tr- talk about in the story is when the former CEO, um, a guy by the name of Paul Odellini, was, you know, this is before the smartphone introduction, right, in the mid-2000s. Mm-hmm. This is when um, Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple, came to Intel and said, okay, we want to cut a deal with you to make chips for our phones. And Paul and Paul Odellini just, just balked at it. He said he wasn't pleased with the terms of that. That ended up being a really, um, you know, really landmark decision and, and one that has worked against them. Mainly because what it did is as this business went to other companies, first Samsung and then later this company in Taiwan called Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, when you win the contract to supply Apple, a lot comes with that. You get part, you get, you get into this ecosystem and you gain the ability to really be the point, the point supplier for this incredibly, you know, fast-moving market, which was smartphones. I mean, remember what it was like when, when you know, 15 years ago, when, these, when this was taking off. everybody was just rushing to get these, and that created a lot of business for the semiconductor industry.
5: So, Tom, you know, they missed that moment, which became sort of the beginning of the, the mobile revolution. Um, and, you know, as you, as you both write in the story, you know, Intel's predicament didn't come about overnight. It's been a consequence of a decade's worth of missteps. One of my most favorite elements of this story and, and what I think we do, um, uh, especially well at the magazine are these sort of like case studies and, and this one really feels like a management case study. So we when, when you step back and, you know, I haven't covered this company for years now, what, if you approach it through that case study lens, what are some of the, the, the big management take, takeaways that you think, um, you know, readers will find most interesting here?
1: And please talk about Brian Kay.
4: Sure. Well, before we talk about Brian Krasanich, you have to go back to Andy Grove. He was one of the original founders of Intel and one of its longest lasting CEOs. And he was legendary, um, specifically for he he was very demanding. Um, He, you know, he was he was very disciplined Um, and he ran Intel you know, he, he was seen as a, uh, one of the early management gurus um, after whom many of the biggest tech executives out there right now pattern their management style.
2: That was Tom Giles, Bloomberg Technology Executive Editor, along with Bloomberg Business Week Editor, Joel Weber.
1: Intel is such a, I feel like, business school case study, and a lot of it has to do with management along the way. Yeah. uh, Or lack thereof. Right. Quite a (laughs) shuffle of executives in recent years as well. Absolutely. Great story. Well, coming up, U.S. regulators maintain a pause in the use of Johnson & Johnson's vaccine because of risks. The impact on the public, that's coming up next.
2: You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. This is
0: Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio.
1: The virus, a setback this week for Johnson & Johnson's vaccine, as a CDC panel met to talk about possible risks and decided to maintain a pause on the use of the drug. The move, Tim, reminding us that the path forward is a winding one. I have to say, when it crossed the Bloomberg Bit of a shocker.
2: It really was a shocker. Markets did seem to shrug it off. And to me, it was not just a story about Johnson & Johnson, but also a story about the other vaccines that have been approved for emergency use authorization. Those from Pfizer and Moderna, the mRNA vaccines.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Listen, and it's just a reminder, like everyone has said, we need a portfolio of vaccines to get through this, especially something like Johnson & Johnson. Great for emerging markets. It's an easier, it's a one-shot vaccine, but nonetheless, a little bit of a stumble this week.
2: Well, for more on the virus and vaccine rollout, one of our go-to voices throughout the pandemic Pandemic, Alyssa Rapp, the CEO of the healthcare solutions company, Surgical Solutions.
6: It's really amazing that, you know, we are very fortunate still to feel this way. Only twenty-two point three percent of the country is fully vaccinated and thirty-six point four percent are one shot in for the CDC. And so we're still less than twenty-five percent of the population, those of us that can jump for joy and feel like we are at least, you know, right. good to go for this round. So I feel really bullish that everyone who can get it, who's eager to get it, should. And if it's Pfizer, Moderna takes two shots versus one for at least a period of time. So be it, do the two and just keep going.
2: Alyssa, how's this playing out when it comes to to your staff who's on the front lines? Because we have talked to you in the past about vaccine hesitancy among frontline workers, among healthcare workers, but we've also heard uh, about data that show that when more people do get vaccinated within social circles, people start to get on board if they were hesitant in the beginning. How's it playing out for your employees?
6: Um, We have, as you would imagine, it's an astute question, we have had pockets of uh, perseverance and pockets of hesitancy. So some of the hesitancy has not surprisingly dovetailed with states or geographies that are more hesitant in general because of their political persuasions. And and where we've seen there being a lot of uh, administration of the vaccine, like New York City, people are much less hesitant and much higher uh, vaccination rates even within our own firm. I think that what's interesting is is that how corona continues to play out is also really geo-focused. As yeah. she said, it might be all along. We've got hospitals in Michigan that are already teeming with COVID patients, again, fearing the second variant is here. And there are other places that are like empty with COVID right now, which is isn't happening right now. MD might be too strong, but but very low incidence of COVID patients. So well, it's very gonna,
7: varied.
1: It's going to be endemic, right? This is this is part of our world. I mean, I was talking to a bunch of CEOs for uh, a Bloomberg event, and they're like, "We need to be ready for the next one because it's coming." Right. I mean, how do you guys right. see? It? What, what are the conversations, Alyssa? You guys are having around that. Conversations are
6: get the first round of vaccinations, preferably with the 95% efficacy, because then to tweak around the margins for variants with boosters is much easier than if you're starting from base zero. And if you, and then and of course, if you have already gotten vaccinated, even if it is a variant that isn't perfectly uh, protected, maybe it'll be a diminished immunal response. So you just have to hope that this first round of vaccinations is laying the foundation, which I actually genuinely believe it is.
2: Still thinking about J and J here. Do you think this is the end of the J&J shot, even if it, no. if it, you don't. Okay. So even if it, I
6: don't, I, I'm not, a, I have no insider information on J&J and j i am not a board member, but they've administered 6.8 million doses and there were six cases and they were all amongst women who experienced these low levels of blood platelets, um, in combination with their vaccination. So do I think there will be necessarily additional screens and, and flags of when you should not necessarily get the J&J shot? Sure. But it's a a blood clot, you know, the cerebral venous sinus thrombosis, CVST, which hopefully they can research further and and help screen better for the patients who would be at risk or tweak the vaccine to not cause that response. But again, I I do agree with Nate Silver. This is unfortunately statistically insignificant. And, you know, the risk of getting COVID and having a really adverse health reaction is higher than the risk of having an adverse reaction from J&J, let alone anything else. So,
2: But when I I say, and I, I don't mean that it will be permanently pulled or suspended. What what I mean is even if it does get back to the point where the agencies are recommending that it be given in states, is there a chance that that ship sailed when the, the agencies made this decision to make this recommendation and it ultimately led to people saying, okay, well, no thanks to the, to the J&J. Instead, I'm going to go with the, the mRNA shots.
6: It could, it could. And the other reality is, is we also don't know what else is on the horizon to be for emergency approval. I I know AstraZeneca and others that have been produced globally are not popular or used here yet, but there will probably still be additional innovations yet that can continue to protect uh, Americans from COVID nineteen, this variant or others. So I'm, I'm, I'm still going to bet on the technology and the innovators. Um, It's just how I'm wired and what I believe in. But I do think that you know, it's it's a tough position to be in for J&J. I, I don't think it'll be the last we see of their vaccine, but even so, whether it is or isn't, fortunately, we have enough of the others being produced and so much more widespread distribution that really, you know, if people want to be getting these vaccines after, after April 19th, which we obviously hope they do, they should have no challenge doing so. There are some states that are have much higher stats than the national averages I've given you, of 22% fully vaccinated. Some states, anyone over 16 has been eligible for a long time, plus right. populous states. But there are states that are closer to herd immunity than the country as a whole. So let's all get there as quickly as we can.
1: How important is it all that we all get quickly globally, get there quickly, globally, uh, Alyssa, in order to really getting ahead of this and beyond it? I
6: think economically, it's absolutely crucial. And I think pragmatically, it's also really important. We live in a global marketplace and a global um, business enterprise. And the the, the phony and false, yet real, <laughs> I guess that's an oxymoron, walls we've put up in this, in this last year and a half in terms of freedom of movement internationally have real consequences. I haven't been able to get my au in from France on a very personal note. I have friends who are mm-hmm. not being able to see loved ones with ease in Europe. Though We need a solve globally for these vaccination schedules so that we can begin that freedom of movement and goods more easily, absolutely, as soon as possible. It'll be best for the global economy. Otherwise, the people... Negatively impacted, and the countries negatively impacted by this are going to get even more acutely,
2: you know, impacted economically. That was Alyssa Rapp, CEO of Surgical Solutions,
1: reminding us we need a global solution. It can't just be focusing on your country. I mean, the borders—the the virus
2: doesn't know a border. It, the problem is, is we do not have a global solution. There are still wide. You know, widespread parts of the world that do not have access to vaccines yet.
1: I always think about our conversation with Nobel laureate Joseph Stieglitz saying listen, developed nations, you've got to take care of the developing world as well when it comes to vaccines and other measures. Well, still ahead on Bloomberg Business Week, what do Amazon, BlackRock, Google, and Warren Buffett have in common Tim? Well, they
2: all signed a letter in opposition of any discriminatory legislation that would make it harder for people to vote. This is legislation that is happening in almost
1: every state, Carol. It was a corporate come together. And a go-to voice on leadership, Yale's Jeff Sonnenfeld, on companies and those CEOs banding together and those that don't. There are implications. This is Bloomberg.
0: Broadcasting from the financial capital of the world, Bloomberg 1130 in New York, to Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991. to Boston, Bloomberg 1061, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business app and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Business Week.
1: This week, Bloomberg Live hosted an event. It was called Disruption, the New Economic Driver. And Tim, as part of that event, I caught up with Jeff Sonnenfeld, Senior Associate Dean for Leadership Studies at Yale University School of Management.
2: Well, he also spoke with us, Carol, on our daily radio show about this week's published letter that was signed by hundreds of companies and executives opposing, quote, any discriminatory legislation, end quote, that would make it harder for people to vote.
1: Well, full disclosure, Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies, was a co-signatory. Here's more from Yale's Jeff Sonnenfeld on the app. Action.
8: These CEOs, it is remarkable. It is, it is a, a great affirmation of each other, which is what we found on our weekend event. We had, on 48 hours notice, pulled together these titans of industry on a Saturday and invited 120, 90 of them came out. And then uh, while there, Ken Fraser and Ken Chenault invited them uh, and, and then invited them and their friends. Uh, to join this uh, petition that was an extension of course what the 72 black executives had signed a week earlier and the response was was thunderous and some of it is um, you know it's, uh, it's it's kind of a, a strong uh, uh, affirmation of each other mm-hmm. but also a strong statement that they're not going to be intimidated by anybody who says give us your money and, and shut up you know it's about taxation and representation you saw this
1: unfolding in front of you then
8: yes it it was kind of a uh if you, uh, and I don't mean to offend anybody politically, but if you take a look at these voter uh, suppression uh, rules, these laws change, going uh, across 47 states now, it uh, was 42 last week and now up to 47, is that it, seeing that as, as, a, as a viral disease in itself, uh, counter it, has been this gathering storm of CEO support. Uh, it is, in fact, a support of defiance in the eyes of those trying to intimidate them, It's happened before in Georgia. Some of the Georgia companies like, you know, Coke and especially Delta and others who got out front on gun safety issues and things suffered ridiculous reprisals for the positions they took in terms of selective regulatory taunts and actual uh, uh, selective taxation, things that are unconstitutional, of course, but they still became issues they had to wrestle with. These CEOs are are saying, we're not going for that, kind of like they did when Ken Frazier of Merck stood out in front and stepped off President Trump's Business Advisory Council, right? And then, uh, then you saw that stampede where they all left for so, the first, first time in American history that the business community said no to the Commander in Chief's call to action. I
2: wonder, though, beyond this statement beyond this letter and and, and beyond what these companies are saying when it comes to actions and and what these companies can do to actually compel the state legislatures not to move forward with these restrictions
8: well you know that's a really good thing it's easy you might say it's easy to sign on it's really not Hmm. that easy to get out in front and put your names out there it's still, people will say talk is cheap, it's not cheap. There are repercussions, and it's really great they did this. However, what else beyond the talk, enough with petitions, you can have a kaleidoscope of these petitions already, right. is the next stage of this is you're seeing that there are economic sanctions. Nobody in Georgia wanted, you know, the Major League Baseball to move the All-Star game out. We had, though, commissioned a morning consult, Uh, overnight uh, set of interviews of a couple thousand americans and what was astounding is that it's very popular in the country outside of georgia uh, especially with avid baseball fans and we saw yesterday apple uh... with will smith pull out in the uh, the entertainment sports filmmaking center of georgia is very strong these kinds of economic hits are profound but there are other issues there are legislative issues and there are things like you may have seen today Brad Karp just announced, the chairman of of Paul Weiss, that they uh, have bounded together almost 70 of the nation's largest law firms for SWAT teams, instant, ready uh, right now to go out to these states.
1: Hey, Jeff, just quickly, and and it's got to be quick, we've only got about 30 seconds. Is Delta making a mistake, Coca-Cola making a mistake? They're in the state of Georgia by not being part of this uh, petition, or at least this signature, um, this letter. Are they making a mistake? Just quickly.
8: Great, great question, because, you know, uh, Walmart, Doug McMillan has been very out in front of these kinds of issues and said was Jamie Dimon and J.P. Morgan. is the fact that some didn't sign and think, you know, we've been out there and we don't need to be the only ones. and They don't know who else is going to be. So, you know, there's no question about where they stand on these issues.
1: That's Jeff Sonnenfeld, Senior Associate Dean for Leadership Studies at Yale University School of Management. And I think what's interesting is, Tim, you know. I do wonder when we look back in a few years, how we look at companies and their leaders and how they weighed in on some really important issues of our time, whether it's wealth gaps, racism, inequities. Uh, I wonder how history will judge them.
2: And one thing that really stuck out to me about the interview was when you asked him about the companies that didn't sign this, because there were a lot of companies mm-hmm. that, that that didn't sign this that have been outspoken about this. Be sure to catch the full interview. It's available at Bloomberg.com.
1: And hear more from that Bloomberg Live event all about disruption and the economic impact. You can find that at BloombergLive.com. You're listening to
2: Bloomberg Businessweek. Coming up next, more on leadership and disruption. And, Carol, more from that Be Live event that you hosted.
1: Yeah, I got to tell you, I had a dream team of leaders the CEOs of Hyatt Hotels, IMAX Tapestry, and Mozilla, all coming from different industries and all very different types of leaders. And
2: some great interviews, if I may say so myself. Thank you. <laughs> this is Bloomberg.
0: You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Messer and Bloomberg Quick Takes' Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio.
1: Bloomberg Live hosted a virtual event this week, Tim. It was about disruption as the new economic driver. It was a really very timely topic, because we've all lived through so much over the last 12 to 13 months, and we're wondering how it pays off longer term. At the event, I got to talk with a diverse lineup of CEOs, the CEOs of IMAX, Hyatt Hotels, Tapestry, and Mozilla.
2: You talked about how disruption has led to change and innovation at the companies and across the industries. First up, though, you got their thoughts on the outlook some 13 months in on the pandemic. We started with Hyatt CEO Mark Koplamazian.
9: I would say that, you know, we've, we've been uh, enjoying some very positive momentum since the end of January this year in the United States. Um, China went through a shutdown and has reopened again and is growing significantly uh, post-reopening. But um, I would say that the as much as we see booking activity uh, steadily increase, we're also positioned to uh, be ready for a potential, um, retraction. And the only reason we are is not because I have uh, a crystal ball. I, the one thing I've learned over this past year is that that's not possible, but, uh, we become conditioned to just, um, recognize that the path forward is not, uh, able to be predicted much past the coming week or so. And so we remain ready to, uh, pivot if we need to, there's no evidence that that's, um, a problem at this moment, but you know, there are, more surges that we're seeing uh, due to the new variants um, that are now the dominant uh, caseload in many countries, uh, quickly becoming the the primary one in the United States. So we we remain uh, ready for a a retrenchment. But um, so far, we've seen positive momentum.
1: Joanne Cravoy Sarat, come on in on this. You're the CEO of Tapestry. Tell us about your brands, whether it's Coach, Kate Spade or Stuart Weitzman. What are you looking for in the next six months to a year?
7: Well, I will say we're optimistic, but the, the operative word, you know, over the past year has really been agility. Um, you know, echoing Mark's comments, uh, we had very little visibility coming through the pandemic as to what the trends would be. And our focus as a, co- as a company has been to get closer to our consumer, to lean into digital and data and analytics, tools that are becoming more available. We were seeing some of these disruptions happen pre-pandemic, and really embracing that, and then becoming a leaner and more agile organization so that we can be more responsive as we see these trends unfold. I will tell you that a year ago, we weren't talking about or thinking about the opportunity to see a vaccine roll out quickly, and, and we are here now. Uh, there has been a setback, uh, particularly with the news today, but we continue to be optimistic. You know, I think our customers are optimistic. They're, they're looking forward to getting out and embracing the, the physical world again. And uh, we've been encouraged by the amount of support and the amount of engagement we've seen all the way through the pandemic with our brands. And and we think we're well positioned and, and believe we're well positioned as we come out of the pandemic to continue to serve our customers.
1: Let's turn now to Rich Gelfand. He's the IMAX CEO. And Rich, you went into COVID early because of your exposure in Asia. How are things going? Are people going back to theaters?
10: Yeah, where people feel safe, Carol, and in fact, they are safe. They're coming back to theaters in some cases, even in record numbers. So um, China, for example, we we operate in 84 countries. And in Mm -hmm. China, we typically do about 10% of the Chinese box office on 1% of the screen. So Chinese New Year is the biggest movie going time of the year in China, it's around February. And this year was up 30% over the record, which was 2019 Um, in Japan. We had a film called Demon Slayer, which became the highest grossing film in the history of Japan, highest grossing IMAX film as well, despite capacity limitations a couple months ago. So there's no question in my mind where it's safe, it's gonna bounce back and it already is in a big way. Um, You look at North America, we just had Godzilla versus Kong, which as you know, opened way stronger than people thought to around $50 million its first weekend. Europe is a little slower, a little bit more troubling, as is Latin America. So I think you really have to look at this on a region by region basis. And again, as, as, as others were just saying, I don't think you could get too high or too low. One of my favorite business sayings, it's never as good as it looks or as bad as it seems. So I think you have to look at, as a trend wise, it's getting better and not get too distracted by the short term news.
1: Mitchell Baker, you're the CEO of Mozilla. Has your company benefited from the past year and everyone going online and doing a lot of browsing
11: online? What we've seen in the last year is change in habits. You know, the title disruption, I think, is quite real here because even online, people's habits are changing. How they're, What they're doing, you, you, you can see that. And so I would say, you know, Mozilla, our goal is a, a better Internet. Uh, And the the reason that our organization exists is to build a better internet, we do it through the market, so we're a software vendor, you know, like others, but our our actual motivation is something quite different. And so Firefox has done quite well in the last year, and in the bigger picture, I'd say, you know, both the good and the bad of the current state of the internet have been magnified. And so, obviously, in the larger picture, we'd say we'd really succeeded because we're all living online and doing things online we hadn't imagined before. Um, but also, the issues with the nature of online life and the way our engagement works are so obvious. And so, you know, with Firefox, we try to address that now even more. How do you search things? How do you find what you want? How do you find with Pocket, you know, content that's worth your time, not clickbait? how to test out ways of engagement that aren't about building outrage for more engagement so that our, um, you might say, the better side of human nature can be more reflected in in online life. And that, of course, is a work in progress.
1: Time for a rapid round of questions here. Rich Gelfond, IMAX CEO. I'm going to start with you. Did disruption become an economic driver for your company? Yes or no?
10: Yes, for sure. I think the new circumstances, um, you know, humans are very adaptable. And the the, the will to survive is primary. And I think you put those together, it forces you to look at different ways of doing things.
1: Mitchell Baker, what's your take at Mozilla?
10: Absolutely.
11: Uh, Absolutely. Uh, Things we never really imagined could be done online are online. And so that's a driver of opportunity, challenge, ability to move in all sorts of different ways, you know, from, as I said, browsing to content, but also what's your experience engaging in content and what is it like to be online and that overall experience. And I'll, I'll even maybe echo Mark and say, um, how does online, how do, how do we uh, amend it? So it drives us closer towards holistic well being?
1: Mark Koplamazian, how has disruption impacted Hyatt Hotels?
11: I think probably the
9: biggest uh, lasting dividend, if you will, from this past year is a changed way of working. I think going faster, being more adaptable, um, having, uh, applying a growth mindset at every turn, these are the things that will persist and
7: continue to add value over time.
1: And Joanne cravoix uh, what about at Tapestry?
7: Yeah, I'll wrap it up by saying that, you know, I agree that it's been a catalyst. Um, It's allowed us, you know, to to build a case for change. It was quite clear when all of our stores closed that there was change that we needed to do. And I I would argue that it it helped us accelerate and be more bold uh, than we would have been otherwise. So um, and the innovation has been tremendous across this past year.
1: I've been weaving some of our audience questions into the general discussion, but I have one last one I just want to quickly ask you guys. What do you think will be the next big disruptor, and how can we prepare for that? Just quickly, Joanne, what do
7: you think will be the next big disruptor? Uh, you know, I think the continuation, as Mitchell said, I'll echo that. I, I don't think we're done. I think we're in the first few steps of a technology disruption and a digital uh, a digital as an enabler, and I think we're in the early innings of that. Mark?
9: Um, you know, as we now believe that this um, this coronavirus could be uh, an endemic uh, uh, part part of our lives going forward, I think how we respond uh, to future I think I think Richard was the one who said there's a certainty of another uh, pandemic in our lifetimes. I think you know how we collectively respond to these things going forward is going to be another. Uh, you know, unfortunately, another disruption in how we organize information, how we coordinate um, and how we deploy um, either vaccines in the future or other healthcare.
11: Mitchell. I'd say mindset, because all sorts of mm. things will happen, whether it's a pandemic or, you know flooding (laughs) of millions of people, you know, you know, with water uh, levels rising, who knows, you know, so uh, so I would say, I think the next big disruptor is really mindset, which is partly our relationship to technology, but partly our relationship to experience, Um, you know, is that consistent? If you have these great experiences, is it going to be periodic in life as these things happen? Um, Can we get back to us uh, or, or work our way to a new sort of sustainability, not just for us and our people and teams, but planet wise and weather wise as well?
1: Rich, final thought for you. What do you think is going to be the next big
10: disruptor? I think it's going to be artificial intelligence. I think artificial intelligence is kind of you know, what the Internet was a few decades ago. And, you know, there are so many simple things, whether it's ordering a cab or food for takeout. Um, you can't see where they are. But I think AI is so big, it's going to change our way of life in ways we can't see.
1: That's my panel from the Bloomberg Live event, Disruption as a New Economic Driver, featuring Mitchell Baker of Mozilla, Joanne Crevoisierot of Tapestry, Rich Gelfand of IMAX Corporation, and Mark Hoplamazian from Hyatt Hotels, of course, all CEOs at those companies.
2: That entire conversation can be found online at BloombergLive.com.
1: That wraps up the first hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Tim
2: Stenovek. Ahead in our next hour, the co-founder of Jet.com, Nate Faust, on his new e-commerce
1: startup, Olive with a sustainable focus. kind of love what he's doing. Plus, how a 23-year-old coder kept QAnon online when no one else would. It is this week's cover story.
2: Yeah,
0: you do not want to miss it.
1: This is Bloomberg.
0: This is Bloomberg Business Week, insight from the reporters and editors who bring you America's most trusted business magazine, plus global business, finance, and tech news as it happens. Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovik on Bloomberg Radio.
1: Hi, I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Tim Stenovic. Plenty ahead in our second hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week, including new data from WeWork that shows executives, employees, Tim, Pretty okay with hybrid work.
2: Yeah, hybrid work, something that we are going to continue talking mm. a lot about is companies are thinking more and more about getting people back to the office. Plus, the co-founder of Jet.com has a new e-commerce company looking to do away with shipping of boxes. All those boxes we've seen on the curbs. I'm guilty the as charged, Carol. <laughs>
1: Me too. First up this hour, let's get to this week's cover story. It's about a 23-year-old programmer who is keeping American extremists online. His name, Nick Lim, and he provides tech support to the U.S. networks of white nationalists and conspiracy theorists banned by the likes of Amazon.
2: We got more from Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber and one of the story's writers, Bloomberg News cybersecurity reporter Will. William Turton.
1: Nick Lim is the CEO and founder
12: of Tech, which is a uh, technology startup that's headquartered in Vancouver, Washington. And it provides a, kind of a specialized set of web services that are key to keeping websites online. Now, you know, the, the websites that we kind of mentioned here, Nick doesn't actually host them, but he provides an essential service, that keeps them online.
5: So where, where Nick Lim fits into all of this is that he's basically a service provider of last resort. And and so, uh, William, just talk us more about like how Nick Lim became became that, and why he why he feels that that's uh, important.
12: Yeah, I mean, you were talking earlier that it's a story about technology and free speech, but it's also kind of a story about an island. Uh, Nick is someone who you know, according to people I spoke to, is technically skilled. He is actually proficient in providing these services, and has been doing it from a very young age, actually. But you know, to him. I I mean, he kind of summed up his ideology to me as, if it's legal in the U.S., I don't care. Um, And, you know, at one point he told me when he uh, offered free services to Andrew England, who runs the white nationalist website Daily Stormer, uh, that raised his profile and made him famous. So, you know, Nick would care, profess to care about free speech and, and providing a platform to those who have been censored by big tech. Then he would also say, you know, as long as it's legal, I don't care. And who are some of his clients? So, you know, the most important client of his, and and one that he has actually a very close relationship with, is 8Crew, which is the home of QAnon. Um, It's where QAnon posted, and, and, you know, the people who run that website are widely speculated to be Q. Um, And and Nick even went to Japan with those people to celebrate the launch of the site. And, And Nick was integral to bringing the site back because Cloudflare took the site offline after multiple mass shooters had posted their manifestos on, and they needed... A replacement for Cloudflare. Enter Nick Lim. He's the one who kind of revives the site and is able to keep it online during, you know, the peak of QAnon, and, and to this day.
1: So you know what's interesting too, William? I mean, there's so many aspects to this story that are fascinating and you just want to know more about this guy that's behind us, this 23-year-old. 23, 23 but at heart, he's an entrepreneur, right? Who just, it sounds like, wanted to start a business but at the same time, he's allowing these extremists who are getting kicked off you know, the established programs uh, or platforms to continue to kind of go about their business.
12: Right, but, but I think with Nick, that's kind of the whole point. I mean, he actively seeks out these clients, and you know, Nick tried to claim to us that he has actually thousands of clients, but in reality, he has a small handful of clients, and, and they are these kind of fringe right-wing websites.
5: So, well, William, you, you actually went to Washington, Vancouver, Washington, which is just outside my hometown of Portland, Oregon, uh, in the fall, actually, so before all the events of January went down. Um, talk to us about what it was like to, to visit him.
12: So, you know, he actually, you know, he split his time between there and Nevada where he lives, or Arizona, rather, where he lives in his mom's condo. But, but the, the Bonventech headquarters in Vancouver, uh, he rents out to some of his friends from high school. Um, you know, when I walked in, I looked on the table, I saw, you know, McDonald's spot, uh, fries and, and uh, half-smoked joints everywhere. In the backyard, there's weightlifting uh, equipment, a shed full of servers that are mining cryptocurrencies and, like, four bonds. Um, so, you know, they, they nicknamed the House of Dansterdam, um, <laughs> but, but it is also the registered headquarters of this company. And, um, you know, <laughs> I, I was sort of surprised, you know, I wasn't expecting much, um, but I was still kind of surprised at uh, just the, the, the semblance to a college dorm room. Um, and especially because Nick had initially told me that actually, you know, he has offices that sometimes uh, his employees go to. It turns out, not true.
1: Wasn't it his grandparents' house, though, too?
12: That's right. According to state records I look at, the, the okay. house was, was gifted to him by his grandparents.
2: What was his upbringing like? Because he sort of has this image of, or portrayed, you conveyed this image of, of growing up without money, but he was also posting photos of driving around in exotic luxury cars. There's like a lot of contradictions here.
12: Yes, uh, completely. You know, Nick in our first interview told me that his kind of early entrepreneurial spirit came out of a necessity to support his family. I tried to talk to his family. I tried to talk to his parents, some of his siblings. None of them got back to me. But, you know, when I found Lynn's old YouTube channel, I found, you know, him driving around in his dad's white Lamborghini. Um, so it wasn't exactly a story of, of, as he told me, you know, creating these businesses in order to, quote, put food on the table.
2: Like I said, Carol, it's a story about business. It's a story Mm -hmm. about free speech. It's a story about technology. Totally. And it's a story about a really young guy who saw an opportunity.
1: Man, just the way that William and uh, Josh, who was the co-writer on that story, kind of took us to him and what they saw, the visuals on it were just magical.
2: Yeah. Check that one out online because there are, like Carol said, some really magical visuals in that one. Bloomberg News
1: cybersecurity reporter William Turden and Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber. You're listening to Bloomberg Business. week coming up believe it or not many executives yeah they're okay with you working from home a couple of days a week really
2: really that's at least (laughs) according to a survey by we work
1: yes that's true this is bloomberg
0: this is bloomberg business week with carol masser and bloomberg quick takes tim Stenovic from bloomberg radio
1: Well, safe to say one of the most talked about topics, Tim, as we move beyond the pandemic is how we work. Hybrid, working from home, what happens to business travel, how much of what we had and were doing during the pandemic ultimately stays with us. How many times do you talk about this?
2: I I, I was going to ask you, is it just me or is this like (laughs) the topic that that executives are talking about right now publicly, internally as well, and company culture?
1: Yeah, totally. And I feel like what a lot of executives maybe were saying months ago, it's kind of changing. It is shifting
2: as even though the the labor market isn't necessarily Mm -hmm. tight in the traditional Definition They want to attract the best talent, and one way to do that is to be flexible with working.
1: Exactly, I think workers are going to demand it.
2: Looking into that, WeWork, which is out with a new blind survey of U.S. companies and C level executives, for an insight into the data they found, we caught up with Sean Gittemal, president and COO at WeWork.
13: What was fascinating is you saw that 95% of employees want to have some control over the mix they have of coming into a headquarters office, working from home. We going into a you know, satellite office or remote office of some kind, and that matched these ninety six percent of c-suite executives said the same thing that they're willing to give that degree of control really so's part of it
1: yeah, that's I find that interesting because there was some other research that we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks where you know there's some disconnect between kind of what employees or, or, or what companies think how well this working from home is going versus employees who want the flexibility but they also want that face time.
13: Well, I think that's absolutely right. And but there's a lot of common ground mm. as well. And a lot of it depends on the nature of the job, the nature of the company, kind of what kind of culture they have and, and how they deliver the value to the to the end user. One thing that you have a lot of commonality around is you're starting to build a consensus in many environments where you'd you'd look at it sort of as a one-third, one-third, one-third kind of model, where you're hearing a lot of people say what we'd like to have is one-third in the headquarters office. What I'd like to have is one-third or something like that working from home. And what I'd like to have is about a third where I'm working from a satellite office or a disparate office. And in fact, two thirds of employees are saying that's what they'd like, which is to spend a good amount of their time in moving between multiple locations. And you got 79% of C-suite that are saying, absolutely, we'd be very happy with our employees operating in some form of a hybrid model depending on what's appropriate for my particular kind of an environment.
1: Well, I want to just say to kind of add on to this um, anecdotal evidence, but not really, it's actual (laughs) evidence. One of our market watchers uh, came on early in and said, we shut our offices in New York City, moved out to Connecticut, and then decided that when we need space, we'll just rent it, Uh, you know, whether it's WeWork or something else, you know, when we need our employees to get together are you seeing this translate into you know future business? Are you seeing numbers tick higher of people who wanna tap into WeWork offices because they just need it temporarily to bring their, their teams together who have been working from home and who are maybe expected to continue to work that way?
13: What you seeing is that part of it's temporary and part of it is, I'd say, permanent flexibility. And I think that's the part that actually is gonna be even more interesting. So you have some people that right now, large companies are turning around and saying, okay, we need to bring our people back because we believe that productivity will be higher if we move away from a complete work-from-home environment and bring our people together, have them collaborate, and be able to to work together in a, in, in a more traditional kind of environment for at least part of their day. So,
1: you know, it's interesting, too, because one of the findings is that the majority, three-quarters of the C-suite, 76%, saying that they're likely to give their employees a stipend to work from home or a co-working space. I mean, when it comes down to it, for a company, if they don't have to house as many employees, I mean, that's a big line item on the balance sheet.
13: That's a big line item on the balance sheet, 100% agree. The other thing that people are really interested in is engagement, loyalty, and and make, being able to build that, that culture. And one of the things I found most striking was when we looked at what the mix was and asked employees, how engaged are you and how, how highly do you recommend your company? The ones that were more engaged and the ones that were less engaged tended to want to be in the in headquarters about the same. So that was a little surprising, but both of them wanted to be in headquarters about a third of their time. What was interesting is the people who were more engaged wanted to be home less and preferred to be in either in a co-working space or in some sort of satellite office versus the people who were less engaged who tended to want to be home. So what's interesting is the ones that want that are actually engaged tend to want to be in headquarters and in you know a satellite office or a co-working environment and home less. And the ones who want to be home more tend to be the ones that are less engaged.
1: So let me ask you something, because I'm just thinking folks are going to be like, well, yeah, of course, WeWork is going to be saying, you know, showing a survey where people you know, will rent space to get together and that they'll want the flexibility because this is certainly your book. So what would you say to something like somebody like that? Although, you know, to be fair, we've been seeing kind of this trend happen over the last decade, this flexibility in the working environment. But what would you say to somebody who's like, well, of course, you guys are going to be, you know, talking about something like this?
13: It's something that we're very interested in. As we were talking about before the break, we obviously have this big footprint. We've been able to see what's happened in China. We've been able to see what's happened in the Far East, what's happening in Europe, what's happening in the U.S., what's happening in Latin America, and how this is playing itself out. And, And what we're seeing across the board is that people want to have the right balance. So from our perspective as a business, If somebody wants to lease a headquarters from us, we'll lease them a headquarters. Mm -hmm. If they want to have flexible space, we'll lease the flexible space. So work from home or work from not in headquarters is is to our interest. So all of those play out in the same way. And and that's been sort of the macro trend that the company's been built on. So this particular thing, I think, is more informative about what we're actually seeing. It's very consistent with what we're seeing Mm -hmm. on the marketplace. And... And what you're going to see is that people are increasingly interested in how do I retain my people? How do I do it in a way that's consistent with the value that I need to deliver to my end user? And how does that differ by department and create much more of a custom model than everybody comes in nine to five every day into headquarters? And that's what we're seeing. And this is just sort of a a, a more refined view so that other people can see what we're seeing in
1: ourselves. I think that's really important that you, like a lot of other global CEOs that I've been talking to, said, you know, listen, we saw the virus and the impact early because we were over in Asia. We've also seen the recovery earlier because we are in Asia. But what you're seeing in China is showing that people want this flexibility and they want to do it differently.
13: Well, that's what we've started to see, right? So in China, we've got 80 percent of the people back. In Asia, we probably got you know 70 percent of people back in general. Uh, in Europe, we're probably seeing something that operates a little bit more like 50, and in the U.S., it's in the high 30s. Then we're back to kind of normal, and and you're starting to see things like we have a, mm-hmm. a, a set of offerings where people can go into any building, and that's where we're seeing a lot of pickup on as well. So people who say, okay, I want to be able to choose where I go at any moment in time. So I think this is something we've been building to. Technology's played itself out, and now we're starting to see it come to a head.
2: That's WeWork president, Sean Gittemal.
1: He had lots of statistics to share about working from home and how employees see it and senior level execs. So definitely check out that complete interview. You can find that at Bloomberg.com. Still to come, though, on Bloomberg Business Week, we take a look inside gender equity in the beauty industry. Not so pretty. This is Bloomberg.
0: Broadcasting from the financial capital of the world, Bloomberg 1130 in New York, to Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991. to Boston, Bloomberg 1061, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business app and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Business Week.
1: This past year, we have had many conversations about inequities. Well, a company is out with an inside look at gender equity in professional beauty. Here to share what they found and talk about our industry, which was shut down by the pandemic, is Well, a company CEO, Annie Young-Scrivener. You
14: know, we conducted this report to really better understand the state of the professional services industry. And in beauty, you are right. Eighty nine percent of people in this industry are female. The reality is, as we found out, majority of the decision-making are still held by men.
1: How is that and possible? So, Can I ask <laughs> you? I'm just like sitting here thinking, how is that possible? I think that
14: as you look at a lot of the you know, the bigger companies, beauty companies, as I look at my peer group, a lot of them are still men. It's Sue, yeah. um, Nobby, uh, Cody, and myself that are women. A lot of them are ran by men today. And I think one of the ways that we could address that is by making sure every opening, every promotion, we have an equal slate. Right. A slate that's diverse, people of color, gender. And we always want to make sure it's the best candidate. But if we
1: start with that lens, people people will bubble up. You've been in this industry, you've been in the consumer product industry for many years. What is it that still continues to hold women back?
14: I think that, you know, making sure that we have the right slating and to make sure that we have um, development programs where we're pulling people, women, and also people of color forward is going to be really critical. When you're diverse, gender-wise or ethnicity, you never want to get the job because of your color or your gender. You want to make sure that you're the best. I think that is a big role. I think the second piece for women is particularly during the pandemic, you saw women fall back and it's because when kids are not in school, they're at home. We're still majority of the caretaker. So making sure that we have the flexibility in organization is not only going to help women, it's also going to help men. So I think those are really critical. The last thing I would say is education. Making sure that every organization continues to invest in education, whether it's leadership development classes. For our industry, we have really looked at education um, critically. And to ensure that during the pandemic, we were also making sure that we were giving lessons to our clients, to
1: our partners, so that they could elevate their skill set. I think those would be really key. One thing I want to ask you, and this is a, is a conversation I'm increasingly having as we talk about the importance of DNI diversity and inclusion, and yet I will have – I recently had someone on who was creating a SPAC and it was all women. And I said, well, wait a minute. We've shown that diversity is what really – Uh, propels the top and bottom line. That's where you get the most, you know, out of a company where you have mixture of thought, men and women, people from all different kinds Mm -hmm. of backgrounds. How do you approach that at your company? I know in this research that you say in just the three months since the company was formed on December 1st, 2020, 70% of your new hires have been women. I applaud you. But I do wonder, how do you balance the importance of making sure women are hired and seen Um, And given, you know, opportunities to advance, but also making sure you balance it with diversity of thought among your employee base.
14: It's a great question. I always start with the consumer. I think that any company that is consumer centric will win because you'll understand um, their needs and you'll create the right innovation and services. And the reality is 85% of purchasing power is still held by women We are in an industry that we serve mostly women. Men are also important. And at the end of the day, what you want is you you want that diversity. And you want people to think differently so that you don't have the same blind spot. And for us, what we look at is a very diverse slate. And then the best candidate, you have to choose the best candidate. You can't say, I'm going to pick that person because they're a woman.
1: Yeah, being aware of our blind spots, that is so important going forward. That's Annie Young Scrivener, the CEO of Wella Company. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week and and
2: coming up, we're talking about something that's pretty close to me because mm-hmm. I have an Amazon problem. <laughs> we order a lot from Amazon. We right. do. And I, I try to separate it. Like I try to we try to put stuff in our cart. Yeah. So we order like one big order a week. But it doesn't end up happening oftentimes. And I I feel a lot of guilt getting all of these boxes, opening them up and seeing that there's only like a couple things in them. Right. And then carrying them from my apartment to the recycling. Like, I'm, I think a lot about the environmental impact of that.
1: We feel the same thing. Like, we'll put out our garbage on garbage night and the, we put all the recycling. and We're like, oh, my God, those are all the boxes from our family. We saw a lot of it really over the last years. We would kind of walk around the neighborhood because everybody was ordering online. Lots of boxes on the curb.
2: Well, one executive seeing a business opportunity here. Former Jet.com founder Nate Faust is looking to consolidate your Boxes.
0: This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio.
1: Our next guest gets e-commerce big time. He's co-founder of Jet.com, which was then sold to Walmart for $3.3 billion. That was back in 2016. Bloomberg Business Week magazine, they have been all over. This company.
2: Yeah, I still remember that cover. I wasn't even working here at the time, but that was the first time mm-hmm. I ever heard of Jet.com when I saw it on the cover of Bloomberg Businessweek. And what an incredible e-commerce story. I mean, the company yeah, totally. was so young and sold for such a huge sum.
1: And it was a big deal for Walmart. It really kind of moved them very quickly and aggressively into online when they had kind of been behind.
2: Well, earlier this year, Nate Faust, one of the co-founders of Jet.com, debuted a delivery service called Olive that consolidates orders from fashion labels, including Michael Kors, Adidas, Saks, and more. For how it works and how it's going, we spoke with Olive founder Nate Faust.
3: We started Olive a little over a year ago. In fact, actually, just about a year ago coming up. And when we initially started exploring it, it wasn't triggered triggered by the pandemic. It was triggered by just a broader desire to do something with a, a social or environmental impact for you know, my, my next adventure. Mm-hmm. And with COVID and the increase in how much people are shopping online and the number of deliveries that people are experiencing, I think the, the pain points and the obvious environmental impact of just the sheer amount of deliveries that we're, we're getting, and not just in the packaging just the sheer number of delivery trucks that are stopping at each of our each of our houses, which I'll say that's probably been the most eye-opening thing over the last year, looking out my my front window and every single day seeing two, three, four, sometimes more delivery trucks stop at my home.
1: Yeah, listen, I think about it when we're ordering Amazon and it's like, how are you about kind of putting this all into one order? And I'm like, yes, I can wait a couple of days to get something. Tell me, though, how Olive works, Nate. Sure.
3: So you sign up, you download our app or on our site at shopolive.com. It's a free service to consumers. When you sign up, we create for you what we call your Olive address, and that's sort of your personal storage space at one of our consolidation centers, which we have two of them, one on the the East Coast, one on the the West Coast. And then when you shop with, with Olive, at any of the sort of 100 or so retailers that we have affiliate relationships with, when you're going through the checkout process, either on desktop with the help of our Chrome extension or on an iPhone through our, our app, we help you insert that olive address at checkout. And then the retailers pick, pack, and ship those orders like they normally would. They ship to our consolidation centers we hold on to them for a couple of days until it's time for what we call your olive day which is the one day or in the case of new york city you have two days per week that all of your orders come together delivered in one single reusable secure two-way two-way shipper and you know just one thing to call out there you're very transparently at this initial outset we're not eliminating the box from the source, the right. retailers are still picking and packing into the boxes, shipping them to, to us, but we are getting what in the long run is actually the bigger environmental impact, which is the consolidation of multiple deliveries into a single delivery, which we're getting, you know, about a, what we call our sort of consolidation factor, about a 25% consolidation factor in terms of delivering more to a consumer's doorstep than would have previously been, um, delivered in the, in the status quo. You know, I like to
1: understand the impact, um, especially since you're concerned about the environment, sustainability, that by using your service, how do we cut down on our carbon footprint by all of the, you know, e-commerce that we're doing and all the delivery that goes along with that?
3: Yeah, no, absolutely. So when you look at the carbon footprint of the, sort of post-purchase e-commerce supply chain, which is the piece that we're focused on, mm-hmm. you know, the, the the biggest chunk of that, somewhere in the, you know, 50 to 60% range comes from that sort of proverbial last mile of the truck stopping at consumers' homes. And the remaining half, you know, sort of 40% is split roughly evenly between packaging and then what's called sort of the first and and middle mile of getting that thing from the fulfillment center or store that it's coming from to the, to the point of the, uh, the final last mile delivery. And what we're tackling initially through this, this concept of consolidation is that largest chunk, which is the, which is the last mile delivery. Now I know, as you pointed out, obviously those things are being, delivered to us but they're being delivered in bulk so mm-hmm. we get one delivery per day from you know each of FedEx and UPS and other potential carriers at each of our facilities with all of the all of the various orders and then when we deliver them to consumers we're getting on average about 1.25 shipments into every delivery that that we make so that would be you know roughly a, a a 20% reduction on that sort of last mile for those packages to that that consumer's home but obviously two pieces there one it's it's apparel only for right now and mm-hmm. so there's lots of things that you can't purchase through affiliated retailers with with Olive. And that will enable a much greater impact in the, in the long term as we're able to service broader sets of categories. And then two, as I mentioned before, we're not eliminating the packaging from the source, but we're actually in the midst right now of working with our, our very first retailer to actually integrate directly with their supply chain, where we would provide the packaging in their fulfillment centers so that they pick and pack their orders into that from the from the source. And that will be the goal over time to as volume supports it with each of the, the, the retailers on the platform to do that, that more direct integration to eliminate the packaging.
1: Right, so in other words, to help them to kind of be better when it comes to their environmental impact. Cause I'm, I'm right, is that fair?
3: Totally. Yeah. Hey, both, both from a real impact and from a customer experience perspective, because there's other benefits that come from the olive delivery experience, mm-hmm. especially from the consumer side of things. Not only do they not have to deal with the, the the hassle of managing the waste from the delivery, if they have any returns, they just put it straight back in the packaging, leave it on their doorstep, and we pick it up
1: that's really interesting well and you know part of your value is also going to be in or at least part of your attraction i guess i should say is the retailers on your site and there's a bunch that are certainly you know in my wheelhouse rag and bone there's aloe uh there's a lot of them uh anthropology so you're definitely catching my attention here um how quickly are you signing up a lot more retailers how easy is that to do
3: Sure. So we've we've had a ton of outreach following our launch. uh, You know, around six weeks ago or so was our sort of unveiling of the service to the to the public. So we have a sort of backlog of 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 retailers that we've signed up as affiliate partners. That's probably 50% more than what's already on the site. You know, Mm -hmm. from the from the retailer side of things, we make it very low effort so it's easy to come on to the come onto the platform but there is some you know configuration on our side to make sure that that whole olive of address thing that we were talking about before that that Assisted entry process for for customers is is working smoothly. Before we turn them live on the platform,
2: that's Nate
1: Faust, the founder of Olive. In the magazine this week, another edition of Bloomberg Business Week talks featuring an interview with Arnold Donald, the CEO of Carnival Cruise. We talked about the industry as a whole and when he expects ships to get back into U.S. ports.
15: We have nine brands, Carol. So mm-hmm. about fifty-nine of our ninety ships are not under the conditional sale order. They don't you know sail in the U.S. anyway. And so there we are already active in um, sailing. And we've announced sailings in, um, in the UK, we've announced sailings in Greece, um, Aida, our German brands are already sailing from the Canary Islands, all on a limited basis at this point, but it's, it's movement in the right direction. And um, we're optimistic that we'll be able to do the same here and, and, and continue the dialogue with the CDC. I think one of the big issues here is um, the relative mentality or, or, around risk. Uh, so today you could board a plane, fly to a country, get on a cruise ship and sail, fly back from that country and come back to the United States. You have to, have to do certain testing, et cetera, but you can do that. And today, even if vaccinated, you can't get on a cruise ship in the U.S. And that's whether you're vaccinated or not in terms of what you could do um, from the U.S. Uh, going somewhere else to get on a cruise ship. So I, and if you look at other the travel and entertainment sectors, um, you talked about spring breakdown in, in Miami Um, Or you look at um, arenas where people are starting to be able to attend sporting events, restaurants, hotels, resorts, air travel. Uh, You know, there is a a level of risk management and mitigation. And so we would like to just be treated similarly to the rest of the travel and tourism sector.
1: That's Carnival CEO Arnold Donald. Check out more of the interview. It's in the magazine. It's online, on newsstands, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal and also on our podcast feed. And that wraps up the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Carol Masser.
2: And I'm Tim Stenevec. Be sure to tune into our Bloomberg Business Week daily show. It's Monday through Friday. It starts at 2 p.m. Wall Street time on Bloomberg Radio. You can also watch our daily broadcast on YouTube. Just search Bloomberg Global News. Also, check out our Bloomberg Business Week podcast. You can find it at Bloomberg.com, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: That's where you'll find the full interviews from any of our guests in The Weekend Show. Bloomberg Business Week, it's available on newsstands now at Bloomberg.com and on the Bloomberg Terminal. And you can
2: also see me on Bloomberg Quick Take. It's available at Bloomberg.com/QT and streaming platforms like Roku, Apple TV, Samsung TV, and more. Have a good weekend.
1: This is Bloomberg.